get asked to guest speak somewhere, um, coming up with a topic, or not really coming up with a topic, but more like narrowing down the topic. Um, there's just so much good stuff in here. I just want to start in Genesis and just preach through until the building's empty. When the building's empty, I guess I'll, I guess I'll shut up. Um, but you don't have to worry. Don't nobody leave. Um, God did narrow it down for you lazy, unspiritual people. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the other thing that's unusual about today, though, is I don't usually get to ask to speak in my home church. It's a little bit of a different dynamic. But see, when you get to go to another church, you get to stir up all kinds of trouble, and then you leave it for that pastor to worry about. He has to deal with the fallout, and I can just run away, you know. But I have to see you people next Sunday, so I guess I'll behave. Um, Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be today. Uh, the title of my message today is Commissioned to Do Likewise. It's part of a larger series that I've been working on for a few years now. Um, the title of the series is called Commissioned by Christ, and it's based on the idea that if you read through the Gospels, when Christ came into contact with someone, very rarely did he leave them without a task to perform. He would, go, he, would, he, would, he would meet them, he would meet their need, and then he would send them out, and he would tell them to go do something now. For the, for the uh, maniac of Gadara, for example, I, I, actually, I almost preached on him. Uh, the maniac of Gadara, it was go and tell what great things the Lord hath done for thee. For the woman taken in adultery, which I actually have gotten to preach that message, it was, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. He always had a task for, the, for them to perform. There was an expectation of service. Well, in Luke chapter 10, we have that as well. Now, this is a familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, most of us have probably heard, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard a, a message or two out of this. It's commonly referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But for our purposes, I would say that most of us, when we hear a message from this passage, it probably starts in verse number 30. That's where the parable starts. And most sermons, at least in my experience, that's where it starts. They just jump right into the, to the parable. But I think in order to understand this parable, you really have to back up and you have to figure out why Christ told the parable in the first place. You know, Christ doesn't just break randomly into story time. You know, there is a purpose when he tells these stories, okay? And the purpose is that he was actually answering a question. Now, we're going to get to the commission in just a second. The commission is actually not until the very end, which is verse 37, where he says, go thou and do likewise. But unlike other commissions, we actually have to understand the entire passage because likewise, that doesn't really tell us anything. Like, like what? Like who, right? So we're going to go back, and we're going to start in verse number 25 of Luke chapter 10. And... Uh, we're going to go ahead and ask the Lord to, to help us out here. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to meet together as a group of people. Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with us in this time. Lord, as we gather around you, as we gather around your word for this time of worship, Lord, I pray that you would make a special impact on our lives today, that we would not leave this building unchanged, but like the people that came in contact with your son 2,000 years ago, I pray that we would stand in awe of your wisdom, stand in awe of your teaching, Lord, and at the end of it, to commit inside that that's what I want, that's what I want to be, that's who I want, and that's who I want to be. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to those things that are unpleasing to you, that we would rid, those, rid our lives of those things, and that having heard these words, that we would commit to following you more closely. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 10, verse number 25. The Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, 
Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I like the King James Version of the Bible. I know a lot of people don't, don't read from that. So I, for this passage, it's not really an issue. I will uh, uh, give you a different, uh, a different word. I did some extra study just to accommodate those of you who don't like the King James. I prefer the King James, so that's what I'm reading from here. But he says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. So if you're reading from another translation, yours probably says test, uh, tested him. You know, you know, so the point is, though, is that the lawyer is not really interested in the content of the response. He's not really interested in what Jesus has to say. He's challenging him. He's testing him. His point is to try to trip him up. And notice the content of his question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer wanted to know what he needed to do in order to go to heaven. Now, this is important because this actually is going to, this is actually the reason that Christ told the parable in the first place. It's this question right here. The second question, who is my neighbor, which we'll get to in a second, that gives us a little bit more context, but it's this question right here that Jesus is really dealing with. What do I have to do in order to go to heaven? Jesus responds with a question of his own in verse number 26. He said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? Okay. If you're reading from another translation, yours might say, how, how do you understand it? How do you understand the law? So he asks the question, the lawyer says, what do I have to do to go to heaven? And Jesus responds, well, what do you think? What do you think you have to do, do to go to heaven? Okay? And the lawyer gives him, gives him a response in verse number 27. And an, he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, excuse me, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now wait, let's stop for just a second. We automatically side against the lawyer, don't we? Because He's a lawyer, right? What else? What other motivation do we need, right? <laughs> let's put our prejudices aside for a second, okay? And let's talk, about, let's talk about the content of his response. Is there anything to dislike about that response? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. I would say probably not, right? That's, that is, after all, what Jesus said was the essence of the law. All the other commandments hang on those two commandments. Love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. Now, either this lawyer is phenomenal at his job, and he came to this conclusion by himself, unlikely, or more likely, he was actually listening when Jesus was teaching, and he was presenting Jesus' teaching back to him, almost like he was saying, well, you said that these were the two greatest commandments. How, uh, excuse me. Uh, in context, though, this is not the correct answer. We know by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we know that that is not the correct answer. And yet, look at Jesus' reply. Verse number 28, and he, this is Jesus, said unto him, thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. Wait, What? Wait, wait, it was almost like if we were standing there, we'd, be, we'd have to nudge him and be like, Jesus, that's not the right answer. You gave him the wrong answer. That's not the right answer. Now, I want a show of hands. I want a show of hands. How many of you would say, yes, keeping the law is a way to go to heaven? Show of hands. Raise your hand if you say keeping the law is a way of, of going to heaven. 
Nobody. How many of you say, no, absolutely not. Keeping the law is not a way to go to heaven. Nobody voted. I had two people, like two people vote. Come on. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to, to, to throw themselves out there. Be bold. Okay. If you thought to yourself that keeping the law is a way to go to heaven, or excuse me, if you thought to yourself that keeping the, way, keeping the law is not a way to go to heaven, I have a question for you. You calling Jesus a liar? He just said that was. If you can keep the law, then keep it. And you can go to heaven. That's what he said, right? If you can keep the law, that is a path to salvation. But there's a contradiction in that statement, isn't there? If you can keep the law, then you have no need of salvation. And that's Christ's point. What Christ is doing here is he is using the law as it was intended to demonstrate our guilt before God. So, so let's, let's summarize here. The lawyer asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what's the law say? Well, love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus said, okay, you do that and you can go to heaven. And immediately the lawyer starts thinking, ooh, I haven't kept the law. I messed up here and I messed up here and I messed up. Because that's the purpose of the law, is that every time we mess up, we accrue guilt. And that's what he, and that's what he has. He's got this guilt. And in verse number 29, the Bible says, he willing to justify himself. That's what he wanted. The lawyer wanted to feel better about his own condition. Willing to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the story. That's when in verse number 30, he starts by saying, a certain man went down from Jerusalem into Jericho and fell among thieves. Now remember, Jesus is telling this, this parable for a reason. He has not actually answered the lawyer's question yet. He's, he's going to tell the story, and then he's going to answer the question. So he jumps into the story in verse number 30, and he says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, who is this man? Okay. Well, the Bible, Jesus does not tell us who this man is. He doesn't give us any background to him. He doesn't tell us where he's from. He tells us where his journey began. His journey began in Jerusalem and he was on his way to Jericho, but we really don't know anything about this guy. This is our everyman. If you're unfamiliar with, with, uh, storytelling lingo. In a fictional story, the everyman character is the character that the audience is intended to identify with. The certain man is the lawyer. Now, when we understand it like that, that completely changes how we view the parable now, isn't it? See, the the Samaritan is not the lawyer. The Samaritan is not you. You are the certain man. I am the certain man. That's who we are. If the, if, if we're going to talk about this in a second, but the, the lawyer would never have identified himself as the Samaritan because the Jews hated the Samaritans. He would have, he would have been like, that's not me. I, I don't know who he's talking about. That's a, that's a confusing story. He would never have identified himself that way. This man is our lawyer. He is you. He is me. He is literally every man. 
The Bible says, uh, the, the story goes on. He says, the man went down from Jerusalem unto Jericho. Now, Jesus does not say he gathered all that he had and took his journey into a far country. Jesus does do that in other parables. And yet this time what he does is he's, he names two specific points. And I think we're meant to understand something from that. Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the place of God's dwelling. It was the place of God's peace. Okay, And the man leaves Jerusalem and goes to Jericho. Now, if we've been in Sunday school, we know what Jericho is. Jericho is the city of man. That's the city of cursing. That's the place of punishment. Okay, So we don't know why he, was, he left Jerusalem. We can infer that it was probably not for good reasons. But Jesus doesn't tell us what the reasons were. He just says what happens next. And fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So they took his clothes. Okay, that's a symbol of the man's dignity. If you recall, back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, after, Jesus, after God pronounced judgment on them, the next thing he did was he created clothing for them, okay, to, co- to cover them back up, to restore their dignity, okay? They wounded him. That's a symbol of his, his, his livelihood, his life, his, his spiritual vitality, And they departed, leaving him half dead or bereft of hope. He had no hope. Now, broken, lost, abandoned, and without hope. This man had no power but to depend upon the compassion of one who might happen to pass by. So the answer to the question then is, what can this man do to live? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing that this guy can do. He is completely at the mercy of someone else. And wouldn't you just know it? it, Somebody happened to pass by. Verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so who were the priests? Okay, well, the priests were responsible for the religious observance in Jewish culture. They were the ones that offered sacrifice. They prayed continually for the people. They offered intercession for Israel's sins. They prayed for deliverance from Israel's enemies, in this case, namely the Romans. Okay? They led the worship. They were responsible for all of the spiritual well-being of Israel. Now, it's interesting that the priests could not touch blood or dead bodies and continue to perform their priestly sacrifice. They could not, they would be ceremonially unclean. So helping this guy would would have made the priest unclean. So who is this priest? Okay, well, this priest represents the first thing the lawyer said. Love the Lord thy God. That's what this priest represents. This priest is our love for God. This is all of our religious trappings. This is every denomination, every ridiculous dogma, This is everything from wearing skirts down to your ankles to dropping on the floor and barking like a dog. This is everything from secluding yourself on top of a mountain and contemplating life for years on end to strapping a bomb to your chest and blowing up a bus full of children. This is every absurd and asinine attempt that mankind has ever come up with trying to attract God's attention and move his hand on our behalf. That's who the priest is. And notice what the priest does. He passed by on the other side. The priest went out of his way to avoid having to deal with a man. Man's religion does not save. 
Man cannot love the Lord his God enough. In fact, the priest was not allowed to help. Even if he wanted to help, he was not allowed because the law forbade it. The law said he couldn't help. He wasn't allowed to. In a cruel twist of irony, it was just the lawyer's attitude, keeping the law, which condemned the man to death. Verse 32. And likewise, a Levite, when he was, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Excuse me. Okay, so who were the Levites? Okay, well, the Levites were the tribe of Moses and Aaron. Every priest was a Levite, but not all Levites were priests. Okay, the Levites were responsible for uh, the mundane tasks, the, the, the everyday tasks around the temple and the tabernacle. Uh, if you'll remember back with me in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, which is where God, was God's first dwelling place, was just a tent. So if the tabernacle needed to be moved, it was the Levites who did it. They took it down, they carried it, they set it back up, okay? The, the Levites kept the flocks, the Levites did the, the cleaning and the maintenance work, okay? The Levites did all of those, those earthly tasks that the priests were too preoccupied with their priestly tasks to be concerned with, okay? There, was a, there wasn't quite the glamour that was associated with the priestly office, but the Levites were typically well-regarded in Israel, so who is this Levite? Okay, well, this, Levite's, this Levite excuse me, represents the second thing the lawyer said. Love thy neighbor. The Levite is all the works which men perform for their fellow man. He is every system of morality that man has ever devised. This is the works of, quote-unquote, good people. People who don't need religion to tell them to be good people because they just, they just, you should just be a good person. Okay, anybody ever run into that argument before? I don't need religion to tell me to be good. You just know to be good. And then you say, well, what's your definition of good? How do you define good without religion? Anyway, <laughs> so this is the vain, narcissistic virtue signaling of our generation. The distasteful, unending quest for unearned moral superiority. The Levite is that egotistical, vain, self-obsessed, and self-aggrandizing moral system that exalts good works for the sake of advancing the one who does those works. That's what the Levite represents. And the Bible says that he came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Like the priest, the Levite would not help the man. On the other hand, at least the, priest, the Levite approached him, the Bible says when he came to the place, he came and looked on him, okay? So it was, like, it was almost like the, the Levite was walking by, and he looked over, and he saw this figure, couldn't tell what it was, approached him, looked at him, and went, ew, and just kept right on walking. That is how we love each other. That is how human beings love each other. That is how we do good works. That is, that is the, 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 you know, when we're, when we're going to get some sort of praise or some sort of recognition or some sort of reward for good works, oh yeah, we're all over that. But when a good work is going to go unnoticed, when it, may, when it may cost us something, or when it may just take a little, a little work 
or a little sacrifice. Well, then we say, well, let somebody else handle that. Ew. Ew. Neither man's religion nor man's good works could or would help the man that fell among thieves. But then we have the Samaritan, verse number 33. The Bible says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. So who were the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. When the northern kingdom broke away from the southern kingdom, they would eventually be conquered and destroyed by the Assyrians. The Assyrians would then send in pagans to intermarry with the the Jews that were still inhabiting the land. Okay, The Jews... Then these Jews would then become known as Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans because they were half-breeds, okay? The Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans, also hated the Samaritans because they were (laughs) half-breeds. That's the thing about half-breeds is that they end up getting hated by everybody, okay? So once again, this Samaritan cannot be the lawyer because any Jew would have cringed to be compared to a Samaritan. He He would have been insulted by that idea by that idea. Jesus would never have even been able to get his message across because the lawyer would have been, I'm not a Samaritan. How dare you? The Samaritans are filthy. Okay? The Samaritan, rather, symbolizes the inclusion of the Gentiles into the seed of Abraham. Like the Samaritans, this person is universally despised in the world. You might almost say that this person is despised and rejected among men, is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Samaritan is hated of the world. He came into the world and the world received him not. The Samaritan had no beauty that we should desire him. He was rejected and yet became the chief cornerstone. If you've not gotten the reference, the Samaritan is Jesus Christ. That's who the Samaritan is. But a certain Samaritan, I love that conjunction, don't you? Reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Ye were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. That's what we have here. This man, this man has watched the priest walk by, has watched the Levite walk by. You can almost hear him calling out for help. Will somebody please help me? I'm dying. But a Samaritan stops and has compassion on him. And notice what he does. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Okay, the inn there, of course, would be the symbol of the church. That Christ brought the man into the church and he paid the church two pence and said, whatever you spend above and beyond, I will repay thee when I return. I could spend hours preaching on this, but we don't have time. <laughs> And so in verse number 36, he then says, Which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? So who is the neighbor? So the the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, 
who is your neighbor? And the lawyer admits, he that had compassion on him. What Christ is telling the lawyer is that there is no neighbor that requires the lawyer's compassion. Rather, it is the lawyer that requires compassion. The lawyer could live the rest of his life in complete service to his fellow man, but that would not change his condition. What hope can the lawyer offer when he himself is without hope? Just as both the Levite and the priest passed by the man, so too would this man's religion and good works not avail him in the time of judgment. The only hope the lawyer had was to depend upon the compassion of someone else, and not just anyone. The only hope the lawyer had was to depend upon someone who he despised, who he hated, and had until now rejected. That is the, 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 the crux that, that Christ puts him in. And that is our commission today. Verse 37. And he said, he that showed compassion on him, then said Jesus unto him, go thou and do likewise. If you are not saved here today, then I have some harsh truths for you. Number one, your religion will not save you. Being a good Baptist is not enough. Y'all stiffen up. It's about to get rough. (laughs) Being a good Baptist will not save you. Being baptized will not save you. Giving in the offering plate will not save you. Church ministry will not save you. Church attendance will not save you. These things do not save. As a matter of fact, our religion has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing whatsoever. Our religion is a chain around our neck, which in our pursuit of heaven's distant shoreline will not only get us there, it will choke us and drown us in legalism. Our religion cannot save us. Number two, your good works will not save you. It is not enough that you are a good husband, a good father, a good brother, a good son, a good wife, mother, sister, or daughter. It is not enough that you pay your taxes. It is not enough that you obey the law. It is not enough that you work hard. It is not enough that you are a humble person, that you are forthright, that you pay your bills on time. It is not enough that you are honest, that you are a man or a woman of integrity. These things are not enough. It is not enough that you are generous. It is not enough that you are a good Samaritan. It is not enough that you help your fellow man because it offers no answer for the times that we fail to be those things. A bank robber cannot look at a judge and say, but your honor, I only ever robbed one bank. Look at all the banks I didn't rob. My good outweighs my bad. Okay? The judge is just going to laugh at it. That's absurd because you still broke the law and you have to be punished because of it. God views every failed opportunity as morally bankrupt as if you had killed that person outright. He sees no difference between the two. Every time you said, I know that person needs help, but I'm too busy right now. That right there is you passing by on the other side. That's how we love our neighbor. We pass by on the other side. We're happy to do it if I have time. We're happy to do it if somebody's watching. We're happy to do it if 
I'm going to get something out of it. But when it comes time to actually do something meaningful, especially when it takes sacrifice, I don't know, I don't know, I don't have time right now. That's our good works. The only plea that we have when we stand before God is Jesus Christ. If you are in this room and you are trusting in anything else, anything else other than the compassion of the Samaritan, you are still lost. You cannot point to anything and say, that's why I'm going to heaven, or that's why I'm going to heaven, or that's why I'm going to heaven, because the only way you're going to get to heaven is that right there. That's the only way. Excuse me. (laughs) Such a Luddite. I always break things. (laughs) The only way you're going to get to heaven is through the compassion of the Samaritan. And if you are in this room, if you are, you can be the, you, you might be the most licentious sinner in Covington. Or you might have been in this church for 30 years. Hopefully that's not the same person. Okay? Whoever you are, you cannot point to anything else other than the compassion of the Samaritan for your salvation. Your commission is clear. Do as the man in this story did and accept the compassion that is offered to you. There is not a single person in this room, not one person, that would rebuff you if you came out, slipped out of your seat right now. Don't wait till I'm done talking. If you slipped out of your seat right now, came down here and accepted Jesus Christ. There's not one person that would rebuff you because we know whatever we spend taking care of you, Jesus Christ will repay us when he, when he returns. Not one person would even look at you weird if you were to come forward and accept Christ right now. And that is your commission. Go and do likewise. If you are saved, then you are not free of responsibility here. You also have a commission. For you, go thou and do likewise, takes on the more traditional thing that we might associate with the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're to go and be like the Samaritan. We have accepted the compassion of the Samaritan. Now we must go and demonstrate the compassion of the Samaritan. But in order to do that properly, we really have to understand what it was the Samaritan actually did. And for that, I've got four, four things for you, and then we're done. Number one, recognize that we are all on the same road. As the Samaritan was walking and he saw this man, he didn't think to himself, that idiot, what's he doing out here? Doesn't he know he's supposed to be in Jerusalem? Nothing like that. As he's bandaging up his wounds, he doesn't say, you buffoon, didn't you know there's thieves out here? Weren't you paying attention? What's wrong with you? We are all on the same road folks. And can I just toss this out there? Nobody cares how you would have done it differently. When you see someone broken, when you see someone in sin, whether they're lost or whether they're just backslidden, no one cares how you would have done it differently because but for the grace of God, you would be there too. It is time for us as a church to recognize not just this body, but the body of Christ 
to recognize that we are all on the same road. We might be at different points along the road and we might arrive at our destination at different times, but we are all traveling in the same direction and your commission isn't to tell everyone else how to travel the road. Your commission is to do what the the Samaritan did and offer the compassion of Jesus Christ. Go thou and do likewise. Number two. Don't let traditional divisions keep us apart. You know, the Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings with each other. When a Jew wanted to go from one end of Israel to to another, Samaria was in the middle, okay? When they wanted to go from one end of Israel to the other, they went around. That's so, so so absurd. (laughs) They were so, they hated these people so bad that they would add days to their trip to avoid having to even run into one. Okay, And the Samaritans were no better. The Samaritans despised the Jews just as much as the Jews despised them. Okay, so, But there, you know, there was no one more divided than God was from us. And Christ's ultimate act of compassion was to erase that divide. Was to, was to banish it entirely. Not only our divide from God but our divide from our brothers, our sisters, all of us here as part of this human family, there is no division because we are the every man. We are the certain man. We all were that broken man lying on the side of the road in a puddle of our own blood. We were hopeless, all of us. The broken are not restricted to time, or place, or tribe, or language, or socioeconomic status, or political affiliation. They are not restricted to any of those things because we are all on that road together. We were all broken together. It is unbridled narcissism that we who are the recipients of that priceless gift should hold it in unrighteousness and filter it only to those we think are worthy. That, that's, that's sick. That's sick. I don't really know any other, way, other word for it. When we do that, and I'm not just pointing my finger at you guys. When we as Christians hold the grace of God to ourselves and say, no, that person wouldn't get it. That is not for us to determine. What our commission is is to go to the broken and don't let those divisions keep us from our task. Go thou and do likewise. Number three, be ready to stop everything to dispense compassion. Notice the Samaritan was not actually looking for this man. This wasn't Tuesday night visitation at the Samaritan synagogue. Okay, there's nothing wrong with Tuesday night visitation, but don't let that be the only time that you give someone the gospel. Okay, don't let that be, you don't have to have an appointment to give the gospel. You don't have to have to make a spectacle of yourself when you help somebody. You just need to be, oh, I don't know, willing to show compassion to those lovely people at your place of business. <laughs> okay, we, all have the, we all have that coworker that we just love hanging out with, don't we? Okay, you know what? That coworker, that fellow student, whoever it was just popped in your head, 
Do you know why he just popped in your head? Do you know why she just popped in your head? Because God's telling you that person's broken and they need, to, they need to know the love of Jesus Christ. God's telling you right now, that person, and now you can't get them out of your head. Oh, and you're just sitting there cringing and squirming in your seat. I don't even like to talk to this guy. I don't even like to be in the same room as this guy. Jesus loves him. Jesus, but, but God, yeah, but, but I love him. And I'm telling you, go to him because he's broken. He's broken and only you can offer him the hope of Jesus Christ. Go thou and do likewise. And number four, and I'm done. Don't leave them on the side of the road. Now, that would seem to be self-explanatory. And yet, I think this is actually where I'm going to stretch most of you. Don't leave them on the side of the road. The Samaritan did not offer this man a blanket and a Band-Aid and tell him, God bless you. He didn't offer him a glass of water and say, I'll pray for you. No, he met every need that this man had. Every single need. And folks, there is no greater need that any person has than their need of Jesus Christ. There is no greater need that they have. Do do y'all believe that people need Jesus Christ? Or do you believe that Jesus Christ is just somebody who's nice to have around? Do you believe that, that not only do the lost need Jesus Christ, but I need Jesus Christ. I don't just like to have him. I need him. I need him in my life, and when he's not around, I'm weak, and I'm lost, and I'm confused, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know what I'm doing. We need Jesus Christ, and the lost need to see that. They need Jesus Christ. Folks, this is not just a story. Jesus Christ is more than a story. Jesus Christ, the very foundation of the Christian religion, is not go out and be good to your neighbor. That's a nice sentiment. But that's not what this is about. The the basis of the Christian religion can be summed up in one thought and one thought alone, and that is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That is what our religion is about, and it is upon that that we go and demonstrate the compassion of Jesus Christ to the lost. We demonstrate the the compassion of God so that others will know that there is a God in heaven who loves them and cares for them, (coughs) excuse me, and prizes them above all other things in creation. We show the compassion of Jesus Christ so the lost will know by our example that Jesus Christ cherishes them as no brother or friend ever could, and he is not willing that they die by the wayside. He is not willing that they die, but that they spend eternity as the objects of his undying affection. And in light of the unspeakable compassion of Jesus Christ, I implore you, go thou and do likewise. Father,